the, the whole of the book. And Paul is addressing uh, divisions amongst the church there in Corinth. And he has laid out in four chapters uh, the central theme of the cross of Jesus Christ that they must be anchored in in order to get through these divisions and build upon. And uh, we looked at chapter 3, verses uh, 11 through uh, eight, uh, 17 uh, last week. And we're going to be at verses 18 through 23 this week here. This is Memorial Day, and I was thinking about the cemeteries around here. And I know that Maine had a large amount of soldiers that fought for the Union Army in the Civil Civil War, and was reminded of the Battle of Gettysburg. And this 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 winter, I listened to the book The Killer Angels, which is kind of a, a historical novel there of the of the of the Battle of Gettysburg, and gave me a renewed perspective. And in 1913, when Woodrow Wilson was president of the United States, the federal government held a 50th anniversary reunion at Gettysburg. It lasted three days. And thousands of survivors camped in the old battlefield. You can see pictures of this online if you Googled it and see the tents set up and they swapped stories and they looked up old comrades. And both sides were there. The, for the most part, the old men got along well enough, but over dinner at a restaurant one evening, some harsh words were passed between a Yankee and a rebel and they went at one another with forks. No one was harmed. Uh, but the climax of the gathering was a reenactment of the famed Pickett's Charge. And thousands of spectators gathered to watch as the Union veterans took their positions on Cemetery Ridge and waited as their old adversaries emerged from the woods on Seminary Ridge and started forward toward them again across the long, flat fields. We could see, one of them wrote, not rifles and bayonets, but canes and crutches. We soon could distinguish the more agile ones, aiding those less able to maintain their places in the ranks. And as the former rebel soldiers reenacting this neared the northern line, they broke into one final defiant rebel yell. And at the sound, after half a century now, 50 years later of silence, a moan, a sigh, a gigantic gasp of unbelief rose from the Union men on Cemetery Ridge. It was then that one of the writers wrote that the Yankees, unable to restrain themselves longer, burst from behind the stone wall and flung themselves upon their former enemies, not in mortal combat, but reunited in brother love and affection and hugs. But what if they had continued on with that feud and kept their pride and tried to kill each other? Their world would be much smaller in an us-versus-them world. But by humility, their world opened up and it actually grew and blossomed to a much larger one that included us and them in a mutual love. I want you to understand this morning that pride does not make your world bigger. Pride shrinks your world. What God has for us when we die to self is greater than when we try to preserve our self-life. You see, the devil's big lie is preserve your life, save your life, and life will be good. And God's truth is no, die, die, come and die with Christ and you will find life. 
The Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and you can see their problems begin in verses 10 through 17 of chapter 1. The Corinthians were like people who were splashing around in a muddy pool when the ocean was right beside them. They were like people, one person said, drinking water from a polluted tap when the finest wine and sparkling mountain water was theirs to command. Imagine them indulging in these personality-driven groups as though they were merely another bunch of elites when the entire world and universe and its truth, its mystery and wisdom were theirs offered to them to explore in Christ. See, temptations often promise more, but they give less. In actuality, they give nothing at all and they demand death. Satan offers the moon. And then laughs at you when you don't get it. But God promises you the Son Himself. The theme of this text that Bruce just read is that believers belong to Jesus Christ. Believers belong to Jesus Christ. I want to share with you uh, three things here. Why, if Jesus is Lord, what this means for our lives this morning. Here are two soldiers who... Put aside the sword, put aside the gun, and sat before once enemies, now friends, and put aside their, their, their pride, and their world opened up to another expanse. And so it is when we put aside our pride and let Jesus reign as Lord in our lives. Look at verse 18, please. <clears throat> let no man deceive himself. If any man among you So he's talking to the church, the believers in the church, their congregation among you, seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Let no one deceive themselves. If anyone seems to be wise in this age, wise in the world, let him become a fool so he may become wise, Paul says. When he says, if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, what he means is someone who operates their life according to the philosophies and the values, the views, the perspective of a world that is opposed to God. A world that lives for just right now, not for eternity. A world that seeks to loose themselves from the safety and protection of the wisdom of God and lapse into foolishness. When he talks about the being wise in this age, he's not talking about the laws of science or the laws of math or sound business principles or medicine, but the underlying philosophy, the perspective, the false answers of, of where we came from, what's wrong with this world, how to fix it, and where it's all going. How to live, how to be happy, how to have life without God, or have God really serve you and be your slave. And Paul sternly and strongly writes in verse 18 here, Do not deceive yourselves. Do not be baited in by the trap. Do not think that you can adopt the philosophies and values of the world system as if such choices do not have a profoundly detrimental impact on your own personal life and then as the church as well. Don't think, Paul says, that you can get away with it. Don't kid yourself. Because what you're doing is you're leaving Christ behind and you will damage God's church. And there are strong warnings about that in the previous verse, verse 17. You see, we all have this tendency 
to overestimate our impact, to overestimate our intelligence, our so-called wisdom. And there were two researchers, Cooper and Brenell, who were doctoral students and, and uh, assistant professor at Arizona State University's School of Life Sciences. So this is a school really devoted to, to biology. And they published a study that male students in their fields tend to both overestimate their own intelligence and achievement and credentials and underestimate others. No surprise there, right? Uh, uh, we all have this tendency to overestimate our abilities sometimes and, and how smart we are and how we got it all together. But after working in pairs and groups, these undergraduate biology students were asked to estimate their own abilities and estimate them compared to the rest of the class. And, of course, regular statistics say that half of the group should place above the average grade and the other half below, right? But the average man there in that group marked himself above 60% of the class. The average woman ranked herself as smarter than 33% of the class. So there you go, male egos, right? And the point of what has been, what was shown, Cooper and Brownell wrote, was that on self-estimated intelligence, men rate themselves higher than women on self-estimated intelligence. That's one thing they found out. In other words, us men are more comfortable saying they understand something without having an actual deeper understanding. And so it is with the heart of mankind, isn't it? We think we know all we need to know about God. We think we know how to operate this world without God. But when God is taken away, it becomes very evident how lackluster we are. And so in order to be wise in the things of God, one must cast off the so-called wisdom of the world and become wise in the Bible, in God's wisdom. The very first point is this. Because Jesus is Lord, He demands absolute allegiance. When you look at these verses, chapter 3, verse 18, If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. And verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, shows us that there is an incompatibility with the Lordship of Jesus Christ and operating according to the values of this world. You must be willing to be thought a fool by the world, an idiot, a moron, operating by eternal values, because you will not live life according to the emptiness of the world's values and short-sightedness and bankruptness, so the world sees you as a fool. In other words, your allegiance to Christ, above all things, must be true of all followers of Jesus Christ, and there's no exceptions. One person has said, what the world judges wise, God dismisses as folly. What the world rejects as foolishness is nothing less than God's wisdom. The world loves power and prestige. God displays Himself most tellingly on the cross in sublime and wretched weakness. Yet that weakness effects God's utterly breathtaking, redemptive plan and thus proves stronger than all the world's strength. The world pants after strong leaders, but leaders in the church must first of all be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world parades its heroes and gurus. Christians remember that God loves to choose the weak and the lowly and the despised, the nobodies, so that no one may boast before Him. 
The world tries to impress with its rhetoric and sophistication, cherishing form more than conduct than content. And the truth of it is, because Jesus is Lord, you can't have both. He demands absolute allegiance. In fact, he says, if any man will follow me, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But secondly, in verses 19 and 20, we see that because Jesus is Lord, living without him is worthless. It's worthless. It's pointless. Look what he says in verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He takes the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain or empty. Paul here is now giving the basis for what he could say before about let no one deceive himself. You seem wise in the sage, become a fool, so you may be wise. And the basis of it is here in verse 19 and 20. And he quotes here from the Old Testament. He quotes uh, Job and he quotes Psalm 94. And what he's saying is this. In chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, Paul is set out to demonstrate that the wisdom of God and His ways are contradictory to the world, and they have to adopt God's perspective altogether because their wisdom, their so-called wisdom, is folly. And in chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of of the prudent. So what Paul is saying is that from the Old Testament, from creation all the way on, God has always regarded human efforts on their own to understand His ways as empty and bankrupt. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, 19 and 20, he cites Job 5.13 and Psalm 94.11 under this idea of the wise, or those who think they are wise. The first text in Job chapter 5 <clears throat> there is, 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 is quoted by one of Job's friends, Eliphaz. And Eliphaz, Job's friends, when, he, when Job goes through uh, horrific suffering, Job has a group of friends, just for the background, who come together and they try to give him all kinds of counsel. And some of it is some good counsel, but most of it is some bad counsel. And one of these counselors, Eliphaz, he's like a broken clock. He's usually wrong, but just a couple times when he's right. Or he's like a blind squirrel, you know, that that once in a while can find the nut. But he says this in Job chapter 5, and it's there in your scriptures, as Paul quotes it, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 19. For it is written, he takes the wise in their own craftiness. That word takes there is the idea of catch, uh, to hunt here. And it's the imagery of hunting in which the hunter uses the very craftiness or cunning of the prey as the means of capture. How many of you have ever gone rabbit hunting or raccoon hunting? Or you use dogs and, and, and you know that if you're, if you're rabbit hunting, those, those rabbits will circle back, right? They think they're covering the traps, but they eventually circle back, and there you are as a hunter waiting for them to come back where they, where they started. You're using the craftiness, the so-called cunning of the animal against themselves, and that is what this is picturing. He takes the wise in their own craftiness. 
They cunningly think they are avoiding the God with whom they will one day have to give an account to. And, 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 and God uses that very cunning to ensnare them. And so thinking themselves to be wise and have outsmarted God and outwitted God, they are actually fools. And they're putting their hands in front of their face saying, I can't see you, so you can't see me. But the second text is from Psalm 94. And I'd like you to turn there, please, to see the context. Psalm 94, and beginning in verse 8. Where the psalmist says, Understand, you senseless, you brutish, you animal-like among the people, and you fools. When will you be wise? Can you outsmart God? And the answer to this is expressed in a rhetorical question of verse 9. He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? The one who made the ear, you don't think you think you can hide from him? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastises or punishes the heathen, shall not he correct? He that teaches man's knowledge, shall not he know? And verse 11 is what Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 3.20. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, knows the thoughts of man that they are vanity. That they are futile. That they are empty. And this passage here uh, emphasizes the emptiness here of, of man's wisdom. God knows their reasonings and they're futile. God has outthought things from beginning to end. And Paul here is saying that the Corinthians are themselves fools if they don't take seriously God's view of things. Friends, the scriptures say over and over and over again that there is a way that seems right to mankind. But the end destination of it is ten times out of ten destruction. There are no exceptions to that. It will lead to nothing. It's like the dust you blow off your bookshelf. It will be eliminated. It will be shown to be empty. And lives that are lived according to the world's limited, pretend perspective to try to distract themselves from the truth of God and the impending accountability of man with God that will come at one day. They will meet the diamond edge of God's wisdom and nothing shall stand. You either come to God... Or you come to foolishness. Perhaps you've heard people say, well, I'm checking out Christianity or the Bible, but I also understand Christians can't do this, or the Bible says you're not supposed to do that, you're supposed to do this, or you're supposed to give up sex outside of marriage, and I can't accept that. So people want to come to Christ with this list of conditions, right? If you strike these from the clause, God, then, then I'll come to you. But the real question is this. pastor in New York City has penned it this way. Is there a God who is the source of all beauty and glory and life? And if knowing Christ will fill your life with His goodness and power and joy so that you could live with Him in endless ages with His life increasing in you every day, if that's true, why would you say things you mean I have to give up this? Right? So, you use this illustration, let's, let's say you have a friend who's dying of some terrible disease. So you take him to the doctor and the doctor says, I got a remedy for you. If you just follow my advice, you will be healed. And you will live a long and fruitful life. But there's only one problem. While you're taking my remedy, you can't eat chocolate. 
Now, what if your friend turned to you and said, I know I'm dying, but forget it. No chocolate. What's the use of living? Right? I'll follow the doctor's remedy, but I will also keep eating chocolate. Well, friends, if Christ is really God, then all the conditions are gone. To know Jesus Christ is to say, Lord, anywhere your will touches my life, anywhere your word speaks, I will say, Lord, I will obey, I love you. There are no conditions anymore. And Christians, believers, if you follow Jesus Christ, that is what you have said. You cannot keep Jesus Christ in the grave and say, oh, Jesus died for my sins at the cross and then he was buried. You must accept Jesus Christ as the risen, the risen Lord, the ascended Savior, the Lord of all who has proved that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. You don't get Jesus in a buffet line, ball piece stuff. You get all of Jesus, the whole Christ, Lord and Savior. Jesus can't be a supplement. There's no conditions. We must come to Him and say, okay, Lord, I am willing to let You start a complete reordering of my life. Because Jesus is Lord, He demands absolute allegiance. Because Jesus is Lord, living without Him is worthless. It's empty. It's worthless. But thirdly, and this is the crescendo that Paul was building up to, because Jesus is Lord, all things become yours. You might wonder, well, what does that mean? Does that mean when I become a Christian, I become this selfish person who now everything belongs to me and I'm greedy. That's not what this passage is saying. And it's, this, is, this is foundational for the Christian worldview. This is huge. I don't want you to miss these next ten minutes. Look what he says here in verse 20, um, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 21 through 23. On the basis of this, so then, therefore, let no man glory or boast in men, for all things are yours. That's what they have been doing in chapter 1, verse 10. They were saying, I like this teacher here, Paul. I like this teacher here, Peter. I really like this guy's style, Apollos. And that's who my allegiance is. And Paul's saying, no, we're just servants. Stop it. We're just uh, uh, along the way here to help you get to the goal. We are not the goal. We are not the end. The whole point is God. It's Christ. And so Paul says, quit bragging about men. Quit being partisan in the church. Quit being about personalities. Stop that boasting, that arrogance. And he says this astounding thing. And you may think this is the wrong thing to say to the Corinthians. They already have showed they got issues with pride. They got issues with presumption. But here is what Paul says. He says, no, it's bigger than that. He says this, for all things are yours. And we're saying, no, Paul. They didn't need to hear that all things were theirs. That's the last thing they needed to hear. But it is exactly what they need to hear, and I'll tell you why. Because he takes them up the mountain to see the universe as God sees it, as creator and master, and with this emphatic so then or therefore, he brings this argument to his conclusion here. And there's a there's an exhortation. Do this. There's a theology because God is this. And then there is a doxology. Praise God because of this. And these verses here. 
So this passage actually has this, this grandeur as you're on this mountain peak, looking over the rest of God's creation, that it's hard to even, even, even do justice to it. But here's what he's saying. He begins with this exhortation, 21a. Therefore, let no man glory or brag in men. And then he gives the basis for it, 21b through uh, 23. He says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's. And then the ultimate theological truth at the end, and Christ is God's. So what he is saying is before this majesty of these truths that I'm going to pack here in the next, next few minutes here, their divisions, their worldly wisdom... They're digging around in the scrap heaps, are altogether silenced and brought to nothing. Lord willing, our family is going to be heading out to my wife's family in Michigan, and we're going to try to go through Canada on the way there, and we're going to uh, try to try to try to drop by Niagara Falls. And if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, nobody goes to Niagara Falls to talk about themselves. You stand in front of Niagara Falls and those, those cascades of water thundering down and the, and, the, and the mist that goes up and surpasses even the heights of the falls does not bring attention to oneself, does it? Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to talk about how awesome they are, right? And that's what Paul is doing. He's bringing them to the grandeur, the awesomeness of who God is in their position in Christ. And he says, let no one boast of men. Here is where your boast needs to be. Your boast was you're self-sufficient. Your boast is you like this teacher, and that's who you are going to follow because you like their personality and style. But in light of all that has been said about the power of God's wisdom in the cross, the servant leadership that reflects the character of the cross, God's contempt is hatred for the emptiness of worldly wisdom. In light of that, Paul's saying, let no one among you still be bold enough to say, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, in verse 22. Or Peter, that is grounding your confidence, your faith in the creature, mere mortals. But I'm going to direct your focus. He's like, this is my, this is my, my, my last shot at it before I get to the specific sins in the church here. I'm going to direct your focus one final time to the creator who's God overall. And so he completely transforms their slogans. They say literally, I'm of Paul. And Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9 has said, no, you are of God. But now he digs it another level deeper and he makes this transformation and he says, all things are of you, including Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. And what he is doing is this. <clears throat> he wants believers to understand this watershed truth that in Christ... God causes all things to be our servants and work for our spiritual good because the Lord of all has died and paid for sin and He has resurrected from the dead victorious. He has ascended on high with all victory and He has been given a name that is above all names, Lord, that every knee will bow to. And if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you are joined to Him as God's children and you have... The privilege of walking in His Lordship. Walking in the privilege of His Lordship and that everything belongs to God belongs to you. And here's what this means. 
Everything that is under the rule of the king and this spiritual kingdom. And God uses it like a master would use a servant to bring about spiritual good. Even what others mean for evil, God will use for an eternal good. When he says, all things are yours, that's what he's saying. This is an expansive view. This takes our eyes out of the wagon wheel ruts, out of our own navel gazing. And God takes what the world seems foolish and He turns it right side up and He says, so no more bragging. And what He's saying is this. When you place your identity in human leaders, you are forgetting that God's the one who assigns the task. God deserves the praise. God grows it. God's the judge. God cares what kind of church is being built up. He holds the builders accountable. But it also, if that's where you're shrinking your identity to in pride and arrogance, it cuts you off from a wider heritage that God offers to you. Pride shrinks your perspective and it also shrinks God's blessing in your life. Because God gives grace to the humble. And he lists here, in chapter 3, verse 22, five other items. World, life, death, things present, things to come. He says, all are yours. If you think about those things, without Christ, every one of those five things are ultimate tyrannies to your life. Ultimate tyrannies to your life. Um, They are to what you are in bondage to as slaves. But for Paul, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ planted the flag of God on this planet. And said decisively to the world, this is God's. This is God's. And all those things must now become subservient to the God and master and commander of the universe. And that is what he's saying here. That God has marked off the earth as his own possession. The world he has created, he has redeemed in Jesus Christ. And so this life and death, this present, this future, and Christ's life itself and the future are ours. Death is ours and so is the present. And we die, but life can't be taken from us. We live the life of the future and the present age and the presence become our possession. And these things that were formerly tyrannies to us that we feared and tried to fill these holes in our hearts with all kinds the things in this world are not tyrannies to us. They are birthrights. They are properly ordered now and they they are under the feet of Jesus Christ. And this is the freedom of the children of God. We are not bound to the whims of chance. We are not bound to the maybes of life and death. The future is no cause for panic. What could happen? Because it is already ours in Christ. Now think about these, these five realities. If we see them from the secure position of Jesus Christ, the world is just the time frame that we live in now to work for God's kingdom. In other words, the world, our life, the world right now, is simply the gateway to the next, right? Uh, uh, the, 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 we belong to the one who will one day create a new heaven and earth and enable us to delight in it. So we live this time right now living for His glory and praise. We're the heirs of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. If we suffer in this world as He did, it's a trifling matter because God in His grace has joined us to the winning side. We can't be paralyzed by the world. It sways an absolute on us. Our allegiance belongs to another. Our vision is cast beyond this world to the one to come. 
Think about this present life. It's not something we, we just have to cling to, right? It's not something we have to try to always preserve and worry about staying young and do all these things that we try to do to, 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 to just seize the moment. No, it's an opportunity to spread glory for God. It's a sphere right now where we serve our God and Redeemer and anticipating a life to come. What about death? That fearsome last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. It cannot have the last word because the one has passed through the hedge. Jesus Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection will thus come behind him. And resurrection. And we're able to understand something that's crazy to the world. For me to live is Christ and to die is even gain. What about the present where I live and serve God? I can't devour me. God's no less sovereign over your present right now than He is about your future and your past. And if He is sovereign over the future, then the future too is not something to be feared. It's something to be embraced. Because I belong to Christ, Christ belongs to God, and God controls the future. So none of these tyrannies control us any longer. They've been beaten. They're under the sway of the sovereign Redeemer. And since we are in the company of the Redeemer, they are ours as well to pursue in boldness. Because the believer in God is a member of Christ and shares in His universal lordship. So friends, this tells us there's a sufficiency in Christ that means we do not need to look for any false props to hold us up. We do not need to look for anything that in the trash heap and we need to get into His palace. It also tells us that there is never a need for any Christian, I'm going to say this carefully because there are people in this room who have been sinned against severely in their lifetime. But there is not room in the New Testament for a victim mentality. Because now God uses the horrific events of your life, the worst things that man can throw throw at you and do against you, He uses those things and redeems them to make you more beautiful in His sight. He uses the the, the difficulties and trials you have gone through to make you more like His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, He gets victory out of the heat and the thorns of life. Because Jesus works victory out of all things in life for His glory and for our good, Scripture says. So friends, I don't know what your family background is. But whatever it was, God can use it for your good. It doesn't excuse the things that were done against you. I don't know what your parents were like. Or the difficulties you faced with brothers and sisters. I don't know the things that you're facing in your marriage. I don't know what people that you have put great confidence and trust in who have betrayed you have done to you. I don't know about those who have bullied you as a child or even as an adult. I don't know about the things that have been, have been, that what people have done that they have sinned against you. I don't know about the sicknesses you are facing. 
I don't know about the weaknesses that you have or the disabilities that you have or the ways that you've been persecuted by others. But I want to tell you this. The Lord understands, but even more than that, He doesn't. He, he goes beyond understanding. He will take those things and He will make you a more beneficial and powerful servant for Jesus Christ. And Jesus works victory out of all things in life for His glory and your good. Because it's an upside down kingdom. Would you just listen to these words as I read them from the scriptures, Jesus' words? And listen to how Jesus takes things that are scorned by the world and says, it is good. Listen to this, how he uses it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All things belong to Christ. You are Christ. And Christ, because He submitted to His Father, Christ is God's. So all things are yours. Jesus paid for you. Jesus purchased you at the cross, Christian. At His sacrificial death. You belong to Him. And He holds you in His hands. And all things belong to you because they belong to Jesus Christ. And God will use all things in this world, in the past, in the present, in the future... Make you into what he wants you to be, and it's better than you can imagine. That's an expansive view of all of life, isn't it? That puts a new perspective on life. That doesn't say, Oh, this is wonderful, this is good that this is happening to me, but it gives purpose behind it, doesn't it? So, in light of this, how can the Corinthians say, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos? That's so little, that's so stupid, that's too narrow. You don't belong to them. They are simply your servants to get you to where God has given you a rich heritage and inheritance. You and they are Christ, and Christ is God. Someone said, let's assume here that the distance between the earth and the sun, 92, 93 million miles, was reduced to this sheet of paper right here. So this was the distance here. This sheet of paper was the distance between the earth and the sun. If that's the case, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of these papers 70 feet high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Just our galaxy. But that galaxy is just a speck of dust in the universe. But Scripture says Jesus holds that universe together by the word of His power. Is that the kind of person you can ask in your life to be your assistant? An add-on? Who Jesus Christ is settles everything else. And your relationship to Jesus Christ settles everything in this life and the next. It is the determining factor of everything that ultimately matters. 
1563, in the early years of the Protestant Reformation in Europe, there was a group of believers who wrote a, a ser- series of questions and answers to help their people learn basic Bible truths in Scripture. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. The very first question says this, What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer to that question is this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Many of those of the Heidelberg uh, uh, Catechism and the Heidelberg Persuasion met their end for persecution for their faith. But they went to their deaths with this truth, knowing that what they had given up for Christ was just a small drop for the vast oceans of joy and eternity for Jesus Christ. You are Christ and everything is yours. But friend, if you are without Christ this morning, you don't know the tremendous heritage that God has made available to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And He calls upon you to turn from your, your ways of sinning, your ways of thinking, the world's way of thinking, to the beauty of Jesus Christ. And He calls upon you to transfer your faith and your dependence from your own good works to the work of another who died for your sin, died for the wrong that you do. And then He calls you to give your life to Him and find new life. Friend, the consequences of the world's wisdom leads to an eternity, eternity, Scripture says, of torment and hell. But God is loving and gracious enough to provide us a way out of what we justly deserve. And it's through the work of another, Jesus Christ, one who has stood in my place. One who has received all that I deserve at the cross and graciously beckons and bids me to come and find life in Him. And friend, if you do not know Jesus Christ today, the Scripture gives you the invitation to come and believe today. To rest wholly and totally in Jesus Christ for what He's done. To declare to Jesus Christ that you are the rightful Master. You died for me. You were buried for me. And you rose again for me. And you've ascended victorious on high for me. And Scripture commands you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And this morning, the invitation is the same as it is whenever the Gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. And you'll find hope in this life and for the next, for all eternity. And friends, if you're one of those individuals who needs to know more about what that means, please speak to me after the service or speak to another person in this room who probably knows more than I do about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But believers, the scripture is also calling you to believe. It's calling you to set aside the doubts, the fears, the unbelief that are creep into your heart and entangle your heart with thorns and vines and to say, Jesus, I trust what you say. All things are mine and under your lordship. I can't promise you wonderful circumstances in your life. In fact, Jesus says it's very hard. But I can promise you great eternal reward. That when you reach that reward and you meet the end of that reward and you come and you see what it is, fullness of joy in Jesus Christ for eternity, 
There will never be a regret that you've given your life to Jesus Christ. Believer, there is never a regret in your life if you're truly honest when you look back of more surrender to Jesus Christ over every area. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray.